Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. This morning we begin a, a new sermon series, a series that we'll be doing this fall that I have titled Rhythms and Roots. It's a title that I shamelessly ripped off from a music festival in southwestern Virginia, but you don't know that. You just believe that I'm very creative with these imageries that we're using in, the, in this series. But it is an appropriate title for the series because what we'll be looking at are the foundational principles of the Christian life as well as what I'm calling rhythms rather than responsibilities that we are called by God's Word to uh, envelop or to exhibit in our lives. And many of us get very busy and sometimes we are doing all that we can do and we then are reminded of something else that we're supposed to do and we feel overwhelmed by these responsibilities, thinking one more thing is just going to cause a collapse in our lives. And yet, God has given us certain things for our lives for the very purpose of keeping us from experiencing collapse. And I call them rhythms because rather than looking at them as tasks, things to be accomplished, they are things that are incorporated in our lives. And when incorporated in our lives, we not only are strengthened, but we experience the promises that God has called us to experience as well. Now, our first message this morning is taken from the Matthew 6.33. I will read the, uh, for the context, I'll be reading beginning in verse 25. But as we come to God's Word this morning, laying a foundation for the messages that are also to come, uh, as well as seeking priorities for our own lives this morning. The Word of God. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. May the Lord give us understanding from his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we do come and commit ourselves to this time where we not only are looking at your word, but we're committing to listening for your voice, even through uh, the message that I seek to bring. We do pray, Lord, that you would speak through and speak despite what I have to say, and allow the words that you have given us to resonate in our hearts as well as our minds, to bear the fruit that you would have be born, that we would be reshaped, reoriented, and able to rejoice because we are reminded of your love and your love that guides us. Bless us, Lord, and may we be blessed not only that we may know, but by your Spirit enabling us to apply these truths to our lives, that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your Word and enjoy the benefits 
because of it. We pray this for the sake of the name of Christ. Amen. Reading not long ago the semi-autobiographical book by author Stephen Pressfield. This book is titled The War of Art. He recounts in that book a really period of his life where he was struggling, struggling significantly. He was living out of the back of his own car as he was pursuing uh, writing what he believed that he was supposed to do, what he believed that he was uh, gifted to do and what was the passion of his life. And yet, at that point in his life, his writing wasn't paying, well, almost any bill. And so finding himself living in the back of his car, but nevertheless convinced he was doing what was right, he began to see that labors that he was pursuing paying off. And as he began seeing that, he, he had an understanding, or what he calls a, a recognition of, of principles, and he came to understand what he calls the principle of priority. And he says the principle of priority states this, that you must know the difference between what is urgent and what is important. And second, you must do what is important first. Now, as we come to this text to say that Jesus is addressing our priorities, that the difference between that which is important and that which is urgent is probably quite obvious. Jesus is speaking here in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom where he's describing what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And here in this particular section, he's addressing some things that we're all familiar with. He's, uh, with. he's talking about the necessities of life. And he's asking, saying that people are asking the question about food. What is it that we're going to eat? Or how are we going to feed ourselves? How are we going to be strengthened and nourished? Or drinking. What is it that we're, we're going to, to be able to drink to sustain, uh, sustain our, our bodies? Or clothing, what is it that I need to wear that I can be protected from the elements and, and, uh, or, uh, in order to keep myself safe? He's, he's addressing these very familiar issues, and I would suggest that there's no reason to believe that the list that he gives is exhaustive, that these are the only things that people have on their mind or are concerned with. I think it's really suggestive, because he's talking about the basic necessities of life, things that we all need, things that we desire that we all think about from one, time, uh, from one time or another, and that sometimes occupy a lot of our attention. But then he finishes with an instruction, the section with an instruction and with a promise, a few instructions, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. That's the promise that he's offering for us. As I think about this particular passage, and really even that particular verse, I find myself thinking, on the one hand, this is really good news for us because it is a reminder that there is nothing wrong with material things. We're desiring material things. There's nothing unspiritual about it. Jesus is not confronting people who have their minds occupied with the, these, these things, these material things, and saying, you know, this is just wrong. There's no, there's no hint of that whatsoever. He actually is affirming the reality of the need that we have for those, and he's not saying there's anything wrong with thinking about these things, or providing, or laboring, striving, or, or seeking these things. There's no hint of that correction that he's making to the people there. And yet, on the other hand, while it's good news that the desire for and even the, uh, the thoughts towards material things is, is not in any way unspiritual, Jesus is saying that there are things that are more important that should be of higher priority. 
that while those things may be important and urgent, there are things of greater importance and should occupy our attention. In short, what Jesus is saying in this particular verse, and really at the end, to sum up this particular section of his message, is that we are to seek first the things that are of ultimate importance, the things that are of greater importance. And he says those things are the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Those are the things that we ought to be seeking. That's the priority of our lives, the foundational priority of our lives. You know, I know within this congregation where many of you have grown up in church or been believers for a long time, you're students of the word, whether uh, even though, although we have a wide range of areas where people are, and, and certainly there are those who may be seeking and not knowing the Lord right now. But I know that in the back of your minds, some of you are thinking, look, we know that, we've heard that. And I know you have. I mean, these are very familiar words. But I want you to stop for a moment and think. And think about a few things and ask yourself a couple of questions. The first question is this. Do you see that when we are more concerned about material things, whether it's basic necessities like food, drink, clothing, shelter, do you see that when that is what is occupying our attention and our thoughts, that we are functionally acting like unbelievers? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Look again at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For Gentiles, or some translations say, for pagans, seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, when Jesus is saying Gentiles or pagans, which in the church, that can be a pejorative type term, Jesus is not calling names of anybody. He's just describing the faith of many of the people that are surrounding the believers that are listening to him talk. Pagan religion simply means that they, they respect, they honor, and then move towards worship of the earth, of nature, of creation, unaware of the reality or unfocused on the reality of a creator. Their attention is on that which is created. And so he's saying that the pagan people, they realize that they have these needs, they realize they have these needs, and they crave after them as well. But he says, but your father is the one that gives them. And he's making a distinction between these people who are seeking after God through Jesus' message and people who don't know about God the Father who is the creator of all and who loves and who provides. And he's saying that these people that don't know God, they're pursuing them. He's not saying there's anything wrong with that because God provides. If there was something wrong, God wouldn't provide. But our God, who is the creator of all, in his grace, he provides for both the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But Jesus' point is, look, this is a very natural and a very normal thing, and so you're getting all uptight and anxious and focused and obsessed on pursuing these material things, which there's nothing wrong with those things and desiring those things. But when he's pointing out that the Gentiles or the pagans look after that, he's saying, do you realize that when that's the object, you're functioning more like people who don't know that there is a creator who loves a people that is called to himself and has provided and will provide, then you are acting like somebody who knows that there is a creator who Jesus points out is a father whose love and provision has been recorded through history. It's important that we realize that Jesus is challenging us on this because it's very, very normal for us to shift our attention to these basic needs 
things that we need to survive, to get by, and to flourish in this culture. And he's not saying that these things are bad. He's saying that there's something that's more important, but he's reminding us that when those things occupy everything, that our attention and energies, that there really is functionally no difference in our lives between a, than, than with people who do not know God. The second question I want you to ask is actually more pertinent to what I want to deal with this morning. And it's a little more simple. What exactly is Jesus talking about? I mean, he's given us these instructions, but what do they mean? We know the words, but it's, it's kind of like looking through stained glass. You can see the outlines of everything, but you're not necessarily seeing very clearly at least that's been my experience in looking at this particular text. And these instructions, as familiar and in some ways simple as they can be, I mean, how much more difficult can it be? Seek first, so we know where the priority is, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It seems relatively simple. And yet, nevertheless, it's important that we stop, pause, and consider what it is that Jesus has said so that we can evaluate whether our lives are in line with the priorities that he lays out. So we begin with the first of his instructions, which actually these instructions go together. It's important that we understand Jesus is not saying, as he does in other places, okay, the first priority is to seek the kingdom of God. And then I'll throw in a second one as a bonus, and then seek his righteousness. He does that in certain places when he's asked what's the most important command, and he gives that command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And the second one is like it, but it's subordinate. It's so important that it can't be left out, but it is not the same priority. Jesus is not doing that here. He has two aspects, two components of the one instruction, seeking first, and then two components that are related, though distinct. They both are equally the priority that is the foundation for our life. And the first one that he mentions is the first one we'll look at is seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is, as I've defined it, is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of his people. It's important that we understand the definition and understand what the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just some future period after the return of Christ that we're sitting here waiting for. Jesus was pretty clear when he was walking on the earth, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's near, it's present. And the reason it was present is because it was present in him. He is the king that the Father has sent. He is the one who reigns and has the right to reign throughout all of the earth. The kingdom of God is a present reality, even though the full expression of it is yet to be known. Theologians call that the now, but not yet. Theologians come up with really neat concepts like that, don't they? I mean, okay, well, we have it now, but we don't have it all that we're supposed to be. So theological phrases, the now, but not yet. Again, I like to throw these out once in a while so you can work these tidbits into your conversations throughout the week and see what kind of weird looks you get from the people that you work with. But it is the now but not yet reality of the kingdom. The kingdom is now. Jesus is the king. Jesus is reigning. And yet there is not a geopolitical entity of his kingdom. He's not carving out a geographical place and saying, okay, my kingdom is going to be headquartered and based here, and everybody needs to come to this particular place. Part of the reason for that is he's the king and it deserves all of the earth. All of the earth is his, and one day all of the earth will be his again. But for right now, while he is king, he doesn't have a geographical kingdom. He doesn't have a political kingdom. He has a people that he has redeemed from every tribe and every place on the corners of the earth. And the people that belong to him, who claim him to be the king, 
are his subjects. And where he reigns is not within a geographical territory, but in the hearts and then therefore in the lives of the people who belong to him. The kingdom of God is at hand for anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. And that means that the seeking first the kingdom of God has some very practical implications. It's not just this idea of thinking about kingly thoughts. It's not this idea of thinking about heaven. Jesus is speaking about something that is more immediate, allowing him or recognizing him as king. Now, a lot of times when we talk about this, it seems that we recognize, and it's appropriately so, it has implications on mission, global mission, personal evangelism. See, if we want to see the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God, and ultimately Christ is at work redeeming all things and reconciling them to himself, part of the way that he is doing that is through our labors in personal evangelism with the people that we know, sharing the good news, the hope that we have, in ways that are clear enough for people to comprehend, realize their own brokenness, and recognize that Christ offers a hope that actually the whole world is looking for, but it can be found nowhere else. We do that not only in the sphere of our own interpersonal relationships, but we do have a responsibility to be partnering and laboring so that that goes to every place on earth and advancing the gospel through global mission, where individuals who will go, who are therefore are sent in order to go, who are supported both prayer, financially, logistically, they are able to go and live amongst the people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can demonstrate it, they can proclaim it, so that people can come and join. And therefore, the kingdom of God expands numerically as more and more people come into the fold and allow Christ to reign in their hearts and then dictate the way that they live their lives, which is distinct from all other religions, all other places. That is certainly a clear implication. It's one that we need to take seriously and one that we need to consistently ask ourselves, are we being faithful? Is Christ reigning? And what is my role? What is my part in advancing the kingdom of God both here locally where we live, and then what is it that I and we as a church are doing to advance the kingdom of God globally. But it also has more practical and more immediate application than even evangelism and mission, as important as that is. Because if the definition of the kingdom is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of his people, it's not just about getting more people. It's about the extent to which Christ is reigning in my life and in my heart. Now, today, and tomorrow, and each day thereafter. Because there's a tendency in my life that even though I've surrendered myself to Christ and recognizing the surpassing greatness, just what benefit there is of being reconciled to God and knowing him, and saying that my life now belongs to Jesus, I like to hold on to different aspects. And even certain areas of my life that I've yielded to Christ, I find myself taking back. It's like a, you know, a war-torn area where the, the boundary lines keep getting turned over. It's possessed by one, one country and then taken over by another. Well, when I turn over to Christ, I take back a lot. And I need to recognize that in my life, it needs to be constantly renewed that I am living my life to Christ and not expecting Christ to live his life simply for me. He's already done that. But now he's the one who's the king and must reign. So I have to ask myself, is Christ reigning in my heart and my life? Now, my behavior, my actions in other ways may actually be consistent with what he's calling me to do. But then the question is, is he reigning in my heart? Do I delight in that? To what extent am I rejoicing? Is he the priority and he the object of my affection? And see, the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God, recognizes that it's not just about my activities and behavior and what I can accomplish for the sake of his church or the sake of his kingdom. 
It's about constantly growing in His grace and yielding my life to Him. That's what the kingdom of God, seeking the kingdom of God requires. Now, along with that, but also related to that, Jesus' other requirement, other instruction to us is this. Seek first His righteousness. And there's an important little word in that instruction that is easily overlooked, and I neglected it and overlooked it for years. Three letters. It's the word his. And it makes a tremendous difference in what, understanding what Jesus is saying to us. We need to realize that Jesus is not saying, okay, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. As good as that might be, that's not what he's saying to us. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, the question that some of you probably have is, well, what difference does it make? I mean, those, those simple words, and they're related, aren't they? I mean, doesn't he want me to be better, and doesn't he want me to become more and more like Christ? And the answer is yes, but the means by which we do it is not necessarily his means. And the word his is significant in helping us to understand the priority. Before we look at that, we need to understand what righteousness is. Righteousness, I think, is appropriately defined as right action prompted or propelled by faith. There's two components in righteousness, both faith and action. The scriptures tell us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, no matter what you do, no matter how good, how noble, how beneficial it is to others around you, if it is not prompted by faith, it's not righteousness. It is a self-righteous action. My life is full of them. Scripture says those are kind of like filthy rags. I might be impressed with them, but the holy and the majestic and perfect God, he sees them. And it's not that he's calling good actions or noble actions necessarily bad. He's just saying he's not impressed. And if we think that they do anything to enable us to come before God, well, then that becomes offensive to God. Because while we are impressed, he doesn't have any needs. Paul, was writing to the Galatians, he uses another kind of similar phrase. He says the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself through love. Two components, faith and has an expression. James addresses the other side of that coin because he says that there's a number of people that have a faith or a substantive faith and yet they don't do anything. And he says that kind of faith is dead. It's just dead orthodoxy. It's just not alive. The call to righteousness is through faith, because of faith, propelled to be acting in ways that honor God and bless the people who are around us. This is what brings glory to God. So righteousness, we need to understand, involves both faith and action. Now, it's also important that we understand there's another component that theologians tell us about righteousness, and it's not just so that we puff up our head, but we need to understand there's two different natures of righteousness. There's what's called an act of righteousness. is the actions that we do because we're propelled by faith. And there's what's called as passive righteousness, is the righteousness that is counted as ours even though we have not really done anything for it. 
These are important to understand. And there is a significant difference between these two. I look at like it this way. It's the difference between a credit card and a debit card. If I go someplace and lay out a debit card, what is taken out of an account is money that I have earned, money that is banked, that I have banked, that belongs to me. It gets taken from that account, and I'm able to purchase or do whatever it is that I want to do. If I play down a credit card, I am purchasing with money that is considered to be mine. The store couldn't care less. But it's not actually mine. I have the full resources of the bank that is behind me. And so I can live as if the money is mine. I can function as if it is all mine. But I'm reminded monthly that it is not mine when they want it back. And then some. And then a lot of some. There's a difference between actual righteousness, which is what we have in a sense earned, which is paltry, compared to the extensive, inexhaustible richness and resources of Christ Jesus that has been counted to us simply because we've believed and become his. Both understanding, both those and the distinctions are important to understand what Jesus is talking about here. So now let's consider what Jesus said, that we are to seek first his righteousness. Jesus is not saying is, okay, now that you're committed to my mission, seek to be good. While that would not be wrong, it's not what he's saying. He is saying something that is far more amazing and far more important. He's saying, don't live your life with your debit card. Live your life with my credit card. That should be the priority. That's where you go. The Apostle Paul in Philippians, I'm going to share a passage that he, as he wrestles with this, and in vivid illustration helps us to understand. In Philippians 3, Paul writes this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul is saying, look, my life, what I consider, with all the things that I have done, with all of the righteousness I have banked, I consider that trash compared to what is of real value, which is the righteousness that I cannot earn but it's just been given to me through the gift of faith. And it belongs to Christ, and I appropriate it by faith. See, Paul is wrestling with the very thing that Jesus is instructing us to do in terms of the priorities of our life. It's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not just righteousness. See, if it was the righteousness that Paul wanted by the law, he would just seeking first right, seeking righteousness, seeking to be good. But the call is far more glorious because we're called to turn our attention to the glory of what Christ has done for us. We're to seek first his righteousness, not just our own. How do we do that? What's well, the simple in one sense, but for some reason difficult in another? It's to be constantly reminding ourselves that the foundation of our lives and of our faith is not built upon our performance, but upon the gift of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us. And because we are so prone to forget that, 
And we live and feel on the basis of our own performance. We feel good when we've done good things. We feel bad when we have not done the good things or have even done bad things. Our lives are up and down. Jesus is saying, seek first the righteousness, as Paul says, that doesn't come by the law, by obedience. It comes by faith. Seek first that. It kind of is an equalizing thing. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with those other issues. It means that the priority is to remind ourselves over and over again of what Jesus has done, that that becomes a center aspect of our life. Interestingly enough, that's the power by which we are able to be uh, changed and so that we actually can make seeking first the kingdom of God and the discipleship aspect comes by reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done. That's the priority that he's talking about. That's the discipline that he's calling us to engage in in terms of our priorities. Before I I kind of wrap up, I do want to ask, ask a question because, again, this is not probably new for most of you, certainly if you've been in this church. Here's a question. What if we don't? What if we don't seek first his righteousness? Let's consider some of the alternatives. The first alternative is pretty simple. It's that you seek no righteousness whatsoever. You live as you please with no regard for God or regard for God's holiness. I mean, I don't recommend that one, but that is an option, isn't it? Then the second one, which tends to be where we live, is, is this, is that we seek first our own righteousness. And that means that we focus on how good we are, or how good we are trying to be, or how good we are becoming. And we seek that as our primary attention, primary focus. Not that we are mindless or careless about his righteousness, but we somehow think that if I could just get myself better, then God would be pleased with me. And the problem with that, though, that is probably the functional operative mode that most of us live with, all of us live with. I think it's a mistake. See, one of the reasons is that it turns the gospel upside down as something that we have earned or done. And we need to see the gospel clearly if it's going to have the power to do what it's supposed to do in our lives. And second is that's not really faith. It is religion. Religion says, behave, perform. Faith says, Jesus has performed. And though I don't deserve it, I am the beneficiary of love that has been poured out upon me. And the irony is that actual righteousness, active righteousness, things that we do, is still only righteousness if it is propelled by faith in seeking his righteousness. Otherwise, we're just puffing ourselves up. So focusing first on being good or doing better, it it turns the gospel upside down and it makes it a gospel that is no gospel at all. When I began, I mentioned the author Stephen Pressman and his discovery of the distinction between priorities, that which is important and that which is urgent. 
we have a lot of needs, a lot of things that to turn our attention to, and many of us have been successful in, in turning our attentions to those things. And yet we're still hungering for more. A couple weeks ago, I saw the, watched the movie again of Citizen Kane. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have seen it. If you've not, I recommend it. If for no other reason, you can play Trivial Pursuit, and you know what Rosebud means. But other than that, if you have seen it, you understand that it's a story of a man who essentially had everything. He had accomplished an incredible amount. He had accrued for himself tremendous wealth, tremendous power, tremendous influence. And at the end of his life, he felt he had nothing. He had poured himself into pursuing things that are reasonable and had succeeded beyond any of us, and yet realized at the end that he had labored with the wrong priority and was therefore very alone and realized that all of his success and he was nevertheless still a failure. Jesus gives for us here the priority that creates a framework for our lives and our focus and our labors. I call this Rhythm and Roots as a series because, as I explained to begin with, because it really lays a foundation for us and I want us to consider some of the rhythms for our life. But even if we were to be successful in appropriating and acting out in all the rhythms that we're going to talk about in the, for the rest of the fall, if this is not the foundation of our lives, we're building on a faulty foundation. And as any architect or somebody who has bought a bad home will tell you, if the foundation is not settled, the house is in danger of cracking and crumbling. And the same is true for our lives. Or using another metaphor, it's like putting the cart before the horse, trying to be good rather than and seeking first our own righteousness as opposed to seeking first his righteousness. is like putting the cart before the horse. Now, I've thought about that phrase from time to time, and I actually wondered, I don't know where it came from, and I wondered if actually somebody thought that might be a good idea. Someday. You know, we've been trying it this way with the horse out front. So why don't we just lead with the cart and let the horse go behind and try that sometime? Now, even in our own minds, we realize that would just be foolishness, but so is it when we don't seek first his righteousness and remind ourselves over and over and over again about the gospel, the good news of God's love for us, because that is the power that enables us to accomplish. God has promised, look, seek first his kingdom and all these other necessities, everything else that you need. God will provide them, but it comes only through the power of the proper priority, which is seeking him first. His power, his life that is within us. We may put into all practice all the other things, but if it's not built on the foundation of that priority, it will provide us really little or no benefit. But on the other hand, Jesus here reminds us and promises us in this passage that when we have our spiritual priorities in order, the other things that we rightly and naturally desire, they'll be provided as well. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks to you for this instruction. For you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our inclinations, our tendencies. You know that we are prone to wander and then wonder what it is, how we got to where we are. And yet in the love for us that you have given us your son and through your son, your word, that we may have guidance and we give thanks to you that that guidance above all points to you and reminds us of your love, of your strength, of your power. 
that we may not only enjoy life, but we may enjoy it, enjoy it in fellowship with you. Father, we give praise and thanks to you and pray that you would continually impress upon our lives, our minds, our hearts, the priorities that we need. We pray this in Christ. Amen.